0: Oh hi Twitter, it's Monday but don't worry, we have a great show for you.
1: Ryan Jamal Swain from Pose is here and we're talking about Scarlett Johansson, renowned tree impersonator. My
0: favorite tree, truly iconic, Oscar worthy. Well you stay
1: right there and we will see you on the
0: timeline. (laughs) But first we're gonna go say hi to our favorite actress, Scarlett. Oh,
1: such a good actor. See,
0: brilliant, stunning, (laughs) truly. (laughs) Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford. She's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to Diem or AM to Trium. I don't know. Oh my God! Stop it! <laughs> you did not. You we'll, just did. We will get to that. In that a was minute. really. We have lovely. other more important content, but first, how are you today?
1: I'm good. I'm good. You know, we have uh, such a packed show today. We so, really do. Yeah. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. I'm ready to dive into this week,
1: which I'm sure will be fantastic. Yeah. Well, like let's do week. it. Yes? Let's let's dive right let's in. Go. Here's a tweet from Michael Paulson. A New York night to remember, dash plans, and lost revenue as a west side blackout forced the closing of all but a handful of Broadway theaters, but also impromptu street theater as several casts sang, briefly, on sidewalks.
0: Uh, So New York this weekend, if you have not heard, experienced a big blackout on the west side of town
1: but I don't think everyone experienced it. Alex, you were not even on the island itself. I I was not even on the island of Manhattan itself. That is very true. I was in Coney Island because my roller derby league, uh, the Gotham Girls Roller Derby, and we have an annual game. Um, You can see me uh, there, that was before the game, tweeting uh, out some of my favorite pics and just uh, loving on this team. That first photo was by David Dight. We love our photographers, also by David Dight. So, amazing. yeah, it was great. I but also
0: your derby content. Thank
1: you, thank you. So, but okay. also, you know, the, the thing is, like, when we're playing these games, uh-huh. where you're so focused on the game that you're not checking your phone at all, it's one of the random only times mm-hmm. in life when I'm, like, fully present in the moment and I don't <laughs> know what's on happening. Twitter. Exactly. And so I had no clue. Mm. No
0: clue. I, similar, I you know, I went for a picnic. I was not doing high-impact sporting <laughs> events. Uh, but I was on the river having me some nice Cheese, and I was not looking at my phone, and it was so nice. And as we began to walk back into the city, the, the dense part of the city, I was like, "Why are the lights off? What's going on?" And I checked my phone, and everyone there. Was you freaking go, up. yeah, everybody freaking. It out. was a mess. Yeah. well, people, there was so much joy, though. You know, New York, New York really came together. Uh, you know, in Times Square, all those theaters—not all of them, but many of them—came out in the streets and performed for people. I saw even in my own neighborhood the local bodega guys directing traffic. Mm-hmm. It was a really beautiful moment for New York to show that we love each other here. What yeah, all mean.
1: No, it's true. I mean, we can be rude and. Put when necessary, mm-hmm. but when things go wrong, us New Yorkers are here. I'm just glad everybody's okay. Yeah, nothing breakout. bad. You no, know? like Thank I'm God. just glad. I had
0: a few friends get stuck in an elevator, but they clawed their ways out of it. Huh. You know what? They persevered.
1: Thank goodness.
0: Well, I would be <laughs> remiss today if I did not bring up the weekend's most important news. And here's a treat from Kiana Armani. Meghan Markle and Beyonce. That's it. That's the tweet. And I could not say it even better myself, Kiana. This content, I just, I was in a bookstore when this happened. And I had to walk around the stacks a few times, breathe, because I did not know I needed (laughs) these two women to meet. And it's just beautiful. That
1: is the tweet. I have to say, I have had just so much existential dread this weekend, Mm -hmm. uh, just living in this Country, and this, looking at the video of them hugging each other gave me some momentary respite. It made me feel good, it made me feel calm, it made me feel feel some joy. I was like, there is still happiness and some good in this
0: world. What was amazing about it is Megan. you know, Megan is was not as famous as Beyonce just a few years ago, but she has soared past her maybe globally. I don't know who's more famous. doesn't matter. But Megan walked up to her with an amount of calmness I wish I could possess. <laughs> she was just like, hello, Beyonce. How are you? And Beyonce was like, hello, princess. It's just like too much and it was amazing and we needed it and thank you for sharing. That.
1: Only only the calmness that one could have if you were like actually a princess. Yeah, only a you princess know, could it's be like, like, <laughs> like that's, that's Beyonce, it. Beyonce, how yeah. are you, dear? Yeah, oh. well, in the, in midst of all, it all, let's take it to the timeline, send us the content that's bringing you joy. Tweet us using the hashtag am to DM.
0: Ah, Beyonce. Always and Beyonce.
1: Always. More of those videos,
0: yes, please. Yes, please. Well, switching gears this morning, here's a tweet from the Daily Beast. Bigotry is dangerous and in the hands of the, our nation's commander-in-chief, it can mean an inability to recognize individual humanity and a failure to act with moral authority in times of crisis.
1: Goldie Taylor, an editor-at-large at the publication, tweeted, The president is a racist, and if you are still supporting him, so are you. It's annoying to even have to say this, the guy was the biggest birther on the planet and members of the media class still saw fit to give him a pass on race. Goldie wrote about Trump's targeting of four congresswomen of color for the Daily Beast and joins us now. Good morning.
2: Good morning. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, it is exhausting that this even needs to be said, as you note. Why did you want to remind people that they need to quote, put a sock in it when it comes to calling for civility in reaction to the president's racist tweets?
2: You know, I think, I think words are important and I think that it is critical that we call things what they are. If the sky is blue, we should name it blue. If the grass is green, we should name it green. And so I think that, you know, in this context, the notion that the president is a racist is a demonstrable truth. He has shown it throughout the course of his public and private life. And so to name him was one thing. Um, And I don't and I think uh, we in the media classes sort of come around to putting our arms around that, even though we sort of say racially infused, racially tense, cooked in a slow, you know, low racial reduction, you know, that kind of thing, rather than calling something a racist. But I think there was a bridge that we had not yet crossed. And I had been hearing from never-Trumpers, the moderates, some of us in the both-siderism media class saying you cannot group all of Trump's supporters together. Mm -hmm. But what I've learned is this, birds of a feather flock together. Mm -hmm. There is nothing redeeming about this president that goes contrary to the notion that he is a racist, that he is a bigot, that he does practice misogyny in his daily life. And if you align yourself with him, It says something very deep and dark about you, too. And it's about time that we name that just as we name the sky blue. Mm. And
0: you kind of pointed to this in what you just said. And, you know, Trump has so much against him. You know, he called Mexicans rapists and criminals. He, the conspiracy theory around birtherism. You know, there's so much that has proven that he is a racist in in pretty much every way. But why do you think people keep clutching their pearls every time this comes up? Because it seems like we're still not ready just to say it out loud all the time.
2: You know, there are a few words in the American vernacular that uh, evoke, that evoke a, a stronger reaction as this one. And to be called a racist for some people is more, um, uh, is, is, is bad. It, it, it is worse than the, ra- the actual racist acts themselves. And so... It is considered a nuclear bomb. It is considered throwing a bomb in the middle of the conversation that you stop the conversation the minute that you call the other person a racist. And I just don't know, one, that that is true, that that person does have the opportunity to defend themselves from this charge, that here is my life, here is my my professional offering, here is my, my personal persona, here is what I do with myself. Um... Golly, do we still have you But they don't. They turn the conversation back and call you the real racist. Yes, you still have me. And so so they call you the real racist, and I think that's, you know, I I think it's an unfortunate thing. I think the president attempted to do that that this weekend as well.
1: One of the things that you mentioned earlier is that uh, in the wake of these stories, we always seem to see these headlines that are like racially tinged, racially charged, and the like, all of this really verbal gymnastics. Um, What do you make of these kinds of headlines? How do you think that they further normalize racism and white supremacy?
2: One, that isn't just the work of reporters and editors. That's the work of something called standards and practices. That's the work of the lawyers at the big networks. That's the work of the managing editors at, you know, some of these uh, newspapers and magazines who are too afraid of calling something what it is. Um, afraid they'll be sued, afraid that they'll have backlash from you know some other audience that they're chasing. And so those words are always, always, always baked in fear. Uh, to say something that is racially infused or racially charged, I mean, really, what does that mean? Uh, it doesn't mean anything. And so to be able to, to back away from something, you sort of gain more credibility when you're able to put an appropriate name on something and stand on that. I, I I'm thankful for people like CNN who turned that corner, you know, over this weekend. Daily Beast has always been about um, being around that corner. But, you know, there have been some other publications out there who have shied away. And I think they were roundly and, and, you know, uh, justly mocked over the weekend for doing it.
0: Mm-mm. Well, looking forward, you, you write in the story that Trump's words were unapologetically racist, and if you support him, so are you. So I'd love to hear from you how you think the media should handle the 2020 election, specifically when reporting on his followers and supporters.
2: Well, I think what they ought to stop talking about is this so-called um, Republican who, you know, this, this, this heartland uh, working class American that Democrats fail to connect to. This person that they say is hemmed up by economic anxiety. Uh, This person that they say won't vote for Democrats because they aren't focused enough on bringing back manufacturing jobs. It's not why they're not voting for Democrats. They're not voting for Democrats because they believe the party has become too diverse. They're not voting for Democrats because they don't believe uh, in the notion that we ought to have uh, healthcare uh, available and and a right to all people. They're not voting for Democrats uh, because of this fear of the other, of bringing people into the country who may change our values, in other words, decrease our level of power uh, in what we believe is our own republic. And so it isn't that, you know, and so (laughs) it's a fallacy to say that Democrats cannot connect with working class, you know, white people, you know, living in the heartland of this country. They do it every day at both the local level, you know, the district level and the national level. You know, people like Sherrod Brown don't tell me that he doesn't connect with people every day in a meaningful way who are working class and white and living in the midsection of this country. That's where the lie is. What it really is about is, you know, there was a shift in the late 1960s and continued through the 70s of you know, more conservative Republican, more conservative Democrats over to the Republican Party that shift completed itself uh, through the mid eighties and early nineties. And now we've got a party, you know, that is made up largely of white men who believe that their power is eroding in this country because we're becoming far too diverse, because we're taking care of other people and other people's problems. When what they don't realize is that we're all in the same boat and we rise or sink together. And so I think that's the real dilemma, is that the media's been talking around the notion of race in this country so long, you know, that we've talked ourselves into a circle. Mm. Mm. Well, Goldie, it is so good talking to you this morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.
0: Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Latinx activists say they need to hear from Democrats running for president that they oppose not just Trump's immigration agenda, but also the raids and deportations carried out under President Obama.
1: And here's a tweet from Domingo Garcia. The time has come, we rise together, stand up, and demand accountability from both sides of the aisle. Each political party needs to stop using the Latinx community as a political piñata. Mm.
0: Joining us to discuss this is BuzzFeed News politics reporter Nidhi Prakash. Good morning, Nidhi.
3: Hello, good morning.
0: Good to see you. Well, let's dive right on in. You too. This morning. Uh, lately, we've been only talking about Trump and immigration. However, what was deportation like under President Obama?
3: So, especially in Obama's first term, there were mass deportations. Overall, there were around three million deportations during his administration. Um, You know, it was enough that Latinx activists during his administration kind of dubbed him deporter-in-chief as the president who had kind of overseen the most deportations ever. You mentioned uh, deporter-in-chief. How have Democrats been
1: handling Obama's own legacy as they uh, grapple with and bring scrutiny to Trump's current actions?
3: So it's not something that's talked about a lot, and certainly we saw in that first round of debates in Miami with the presidential candidates that uh, former Vice President Joe Biden actually went up there and said that he thought Obama did a great job and he was, you know, very much defending that legacy. Um, Some of the 2020 candidates have started to kind of acknowledge it and come out and sort of say that, you know, we can do better, we need to do better. Um, But it's not something that's widely talked about.
0: Mm. And which Democrats are really coming to the forefront of that conversation? I believe there are a few in your reporting.
3: Yeah, so definitely Julian Castro has been one who's sort of like from the get-go. He released his immigration plan quite early compared to the other candidates. And he's uh, been someone who has quite vocally said that he, uh, you know, thinks that what was happening under the Obama administration was not acceptable and that his plan would look to kind of change that situation. Uh, Other than that, definitely Senator Elizabeth Warren and uh, Senator Kamala Harris as well are the other two who have kind of very vocally said that they disagreed with what happened under Obama. What do uh, activists want the next president to do? So they're looking for some kind of commitment that Democrats take it seriously, that what happened in Obama was damaging to a lot of immigrant communities, and that it's not just sort of like a, a given that just voting a Democrat into the presidency will mean that they are treated better. So they're looking for some kind of like acknowledgement of what happened, some kind of commitment to try and do better. Um, I think a few of them pointed out to me as well that Obama had promised comprehensive immigration reform. Obviously, that's something that needs to be worked uh, on with Congress as well, but that's something that was not delivered under his presidency. And so they're looking for kind of more detailed plans and commitments.
0: Mm. And how is Julian Castro's, you know, his policies are coming forward and he's against Obama, but he was working for Obama. How is he kind of dealing with those two truths?
3: Look, the way that he phrased it in uh, in Milwaukee last week when he was talking about it was that he's learned the lessons of the past— Uh, and so he's kind of trying to acknowledge, I guess, whatever was done as part of the administration that he was part of. He did come in a little bit later into the Obama administration. Um, He was the HUD secretary, but uh, the way that he seems to be dealing with it is to sort of say, look, it was wrong, and we've we've got to learn and move forward.
0: It was wrong. Well, Nidhi, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us an update on the campaign trail.
3: Thank you so much.
1: So great to talk to Nidhi and also to Goldie to kind of tie all of the threads of all the news that's happening. It's like... Things can, a lot. Feel, things can feel really, really bleak, but I just really appreciated that Goldie was like, this is not new. Trump yeah. has a long legacy of for doing sure. these racist things from birtherism to mm-hmm. kicking off uh, his campaign yeah. and just on and on Yeah, and, on. and even with Nidhi's
0: reporting, you know, this has been happening and we can still change it and fix it. It's not just a momentary yeah. thing, but it's a systemic thing and we can change systems. Yeah. So it's out there. Yeah. Well, anyway, we have a great show for you today. Later on, Ryan Jamal Swain is sitting down with Alex to talk about Pose. But up next, we, are, we have your Fire Tweets. God, I'm so excited for them, I'm skipping over my words. Fire Tweets are next.
1: Lends the timer. Find some joy. Fire! Fire! Welcome back, it's time for Fire Tweets. Look, we said we need content that will bring us some joy Please send it to us.
0: We do. We need yeah. it desperately. We do. We and need wh- it to get through our days, yeah. our weeks, everything.
1: Absolutely. And we're gonna have some fun. Yes. We're gonna do
0: this. My favorite. Oh, I didn't do my thing. Here we go. Fire tweets. Hot, <laughs> we did hot, hot. not hold the hot, fire. Oh, it's so hot. I gotta touch a button. Excuse me. Ah, Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny's son, you tweeted. Just once, I would like to enter a room with the same amount of wild, unhinged confidence as the neighborhood kid on a family sitcom. <laughs> Slam open the door, wander into somebody's living room. That was me. My, I told you this earlier. My sister and I used to do this. I our Neighbor's house because she had cookies and Coca-Cola, so we would grab her mail and come storming into her house, be like, here's your mail. Bloop. Can I have a Coke? This is
1: like, <laughs> what if she was having dinner with her family? Does it matter? Like, I wanted a Coca-Cola. <laughs> wow, well, I won confidence like that. Lance, you tweeted. Rappers, I come from nothing. There was nights I didn't eat. The rapper's mm. mom. <laughs> Were there nights that you didn't eat? Were there, are you sure?
0: I always wonder <laughs> with these rappers, when they're saying all these things, if there's someone at home being like, what the hell? fact them. true. Being what like, mm, I don't
1: know about that. That's how I feel hosting this show when, <laughs> oh my like, God. my parents watch and they're like, mm, not so sure about that
0: They're one. like, mm, that's not how I remembered it. Yeah. Sorry. Mm. Well, like Andrew, sex, you sex. tweeted. <laughs> oh, God, this tweet. Millennial culture is sexing your mom. What time was
1: I born? And, uh. As proof, we have proof right here. I would this millennial my texted I text his my, mom. I
0: texted my mom last night asking, and she's like, why? And I go, because I need to know that my rising is a Leo.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what time were you born?
0: 457. What time were you born, Alex? 5 p.m. And that's how you get cast on am <laughs> There you go. You
1: have to have a Leo rising. Yep. It makes a lot of sense. Yes. <laughs> Jay, You tweeted. When you're waiting on a package, everything outside wants to start sounding like a truck pulling up. Mm. Which is true because I, when I'm waiting for a package, I'm like looking, peeping out the window. Yep. Is, that, is that any car that goes down the block? I'm like, is that for me? And it's that also mine? that
0: way when you order food, like Postmates. I order from Postmates a lot. You do because and,
1: you're a bougie. Okay, I knew that. That's coming. Ugh, <laughs> so I support for that. I'm a seamless but kind of guy. for people. <laughs> you know,
0: I, I did not know there was a class divide in There is. In there is. delivery systems. So yeah. anyway, when I order Postmates, every little creek in my apartment sounds like a door knocking. So... You know, yeah. I get it. I get it, y'all. Anxiety. Yeah. All right, treat of the day? <laughs> yes. It comes from Tay. Imagine if you died and went to heaven and the vibes were off. <laughs> like you get
1: there and the music is terrible. You don't like the food. You're like,
0: I was the a people good, suck. I was a good person for <laughs> 80 years and I hate this place. This is bullshit.
1: I went to church every <laughs> Sunday for this shit? You know, I
0: didn't throw gum in my sister's hair. Uh yeah. I get it, I get it. You know exactly. you're looking at hell like that's the turn up, y'all.
1: Well, <laughs> well, well, coming up, you get to see my sit-down with Ryan Jamal Swain from Pose. But up next, we are talking about Scarlett Johansson Ooh, and Lashawna Lynch. It is so hard not to favorite make a tree. 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 <laughs> <My favorite. laughs> this is from A to Z, and while it's tempting to stand here and just let out an existential sigh for the next three minutes. We have a lot to talk about
0: we really do here's a treat from et canada as an actor i should be allowed to play any person or any tree or any animal because that is my job and the requirements of requirements of my job scarlett johansson said while addressing the criticism she has faced over her selection of roles
1: ScarJo later said her words were taken out of context and that she recognizes quote that in reality there is a widespread discrepancy amongst my industry that favors caucasian cisgendered actors and that not every actor has been given the same opportunities that I have been privileged to. But, Fran Tirado summed it up. Last year, ScarJo was the highest-paid female actor in Hollywood, making $40.5 million. The fact that she still feels like she deserves to take up space and jobs away from trans POC actors is a microcosm of how people still don't really understand how... "Quote: Allyship <laughs> works, Ooh. indeed." So you
0: know, I typically am a person that's like, get your coins, get your bag, so on and so forth. But Scarlett Johansson is an actress that has kind of positioned herself as like a liberal, believes in equity. You know, is someone that fights, is allegedly fighting for folks allegedly. like all of us. But you know, she keeps going through this issue, and the last time was when she was cast as a for a trans masculine role, um, and she got dragged a lot for that. And Glad stepped in and other organizations and helped fix the problem, and it it seems like she knows how to just keep it fixed. She keeps coming out and wanting to take other roles that other people desperately want.
1: Right, so you mentioned that role, mm-hmm. which was not the first time oh, that ScarJo <laughs> went through this. She was also cast in Ghost in the Shell. She actually made that movie in which she played an oh, Asian character. Oh, she did. She actually so did it. <laughs> she actually did it. And so the thing that really uh, gets me pissed is mm-hmm. that This is someone who has had the opportunity to learn publicly on multiple occasions. Yes. And who has had marginalized people step up to try to educate her, and she still doesn't get it right. And it's like chance after Mm -hmm. chance after chance. And still does not get it. And what I'm— what
0: I struggle with is that she keeps missing the point. You know, the point isn't that you're you're booked and busy, girl, that you make a lot of money. The money part is a part of it, but it's not the biggest part. The big part is, is that you take up a lot of space. $40 million, $40.5 million, or $40.5 million, however you want to say it, is not just capital, it's power. Scarlett Johansson could change a studio system, she could change bookings, she could change her writer to make sure that other people are more represented in the film she's in, and she's not doing any of that. Instead, she's just taking up more space, taking these jobs, and not changing the Hollywood that she's saying, even in that statement, that, you know, it does, you know, disproportionately help people that look like me that are cisgender, And it's like, so girl, you're not doing anything to change that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think money is a piece of it because there are people who could get those roles who Mm -hmm. could use that money. So it really, there are just so many layers to this. But while the ScarJo controversy was underway, this happened, the Daily Beast tweeted, in a popcorn dropping moment, Daniel Craig will pass on the title of 007 to Lashana Lynch, a black woman, Mm. And everyone was so freaking excited about this. Like, about time. Major
0: explosions in Twitter land. Just everyone just so joyful. And it's because, also, we didn't know that we wanted this fully. Yeah. (laughs) We were all just fighting for Idris Elba to be brought into that universe. (laughs) But, uh, you know, we now get a black woman in this role. And it looks incredible. I saw the clips and it's like, it's going to be such a great.
1: And I think it was also like, you know, you're thinking about Scarlett Johansson, who someone might argue she's a bankable actor. And that is why she gets cast in a lot of these things. So many of us were like, I will now go see yeah. James Bond, like a movie franchise I haven't even bothered with for years now exactly. because this individual
0: was taxed. Exactly, you know what I will not buy tickets to see? Scarlett Johansson playing Mother Willow.
3: <laughs> what I will go see
0: is the new James Bond. There you so, have it. There we go. <laughs> well, we'll leave it with this tweet from Josh Gondelman. Honestly, I know this isn't the point, but there are several trees. I think, <laughs> I don't think Scarlett Johansson could play convincingly. I agree completely. <laughs> <laughs> like Mother Willow.
1: <laughs> there you go. Yeah, uh, the giving tree. The, like, let the giving tree stand in its There you truth. go, girl. We're building you know, your list for you. You today. know. Well, on that note, let's take it to the timeline. What famous trees shouldn't ScarJo play? Tweet us using the hashtag AM2, the giving tree again. Mm, the, tree
0: know, life, the tree of, of life. All these things. Uh, well, up next, I'm talking about the state of dating apps, and then Alex is sitting down with pose actor Ryan Jamal Oh, Swain. so excited. Love him. Yes. Love him. Mm. Here's a tweet from Tom Gara. In the long run, going to a bar and hoping someone there that night might become your boyf- boyfriend or girlfriend is going to seem as a bizarre and archaic as standing on the street and waiting for an empty taxi to randomly drive by. Joining me now to talk about the state of dating and how apps have changed it is Hinge founder and CEO, Justin McLeod. How are you?
4: Great. How are you doing?
0: Good. Did you uh, stand on the street this morning and take a taxi to come meet me? I
4: did. I took the L train.
0: You took the L train. <laughs> Never mind. You did not need an app for that. <laughs> well, it's very clear that apps are changing the way we Date, but do you think it's for the better?
4: Uh, I think it's definitely for the better. I think dating apps are helping us just make better decisions about who we end up dating. We just get so much more of an opportunity to meet more people, see what's important to us in a relationship, what isn't important to us in a relationship. Uh, we're starting relationships a little bit later now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm starting, like, you know, getting married a little yeah. bit later now. And but I think on the whole, it's, it's a positive.
0: It's, it's making it better. Yeah. Well, specifically, your platform, Hinge, is not a swipe platform like Tinder famously does. Mm-hmm. Do you What makes that experience better for folks?
4: Yeah, so we like to say like, there's not a simple gimmick that makes Hinge different. It's the fact that we're designed to be deleted. It's the fact that we're totally engineered around helping people get out on great dates. Mm-hmm. And so there's a whole lot of features. We have deeper profiles. We have most compatible where each day we introduce you to Uh, the person that we think you're most likely to like who's most likely to like Mm -hmm. you back we have we met where uh, after you go on a date we want to find out Mm -hmm. whether or not you uh, whether the date was good uh, Mm -hmm. or not so we can feed that back into our algorithm Mm -hmm. so we really approach it uh, because as a as an app that's wants people off the app and out on great Mm -hmm. dates as opposed to i think what a lot of social media is doing in general now is just like how can we keep you stuck on the app you know Yes. doing more stuff Eyeball's and looking glued. at more things and yes. eyes glued and like that's the opposite ethos of what we
0: have. Mm, the opposite ethos. Well, there is a very famous date right now in America that began on your platform. A presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg and Chastin Buttigieg met each other on Hinge, which yes. I thought was incredible. And you me all too. are saying that you've seen a 30% increase in LGBTQ profiles joining. Yes. Which brings me to the most important question of this 2020 election cycle. Was the Pete Buttigieg and Chastin Buttigieg the most elaborate spawn con we've ever seen in America? I wish I could claim credit for that, but no. I, I literally was like, I when it it and it's like they're getting paid, they're giving money to them for this. <laughs> yeah.
4: I think this is, but again, I think this is the when you create an app that really helps people get on relationships, there are mm-hmm. bound to be couples out there that, that, yeah. that, that happen. And I also think Hinge just has a really good reputation, so people aren't afraid to uh, say that they met on Hinge mm-hmm. very publicly. Yeah. And that, that happens because we're the number one uh, dating app mentioned in the New York Times wedding section, mm-hmm. or Pete Buttigieg, mm-hmm. or uh, I think recently that out uh, editor in chief, actually, um, Philip Picardi, mm-hmm. uh, said that he met his. Uh, did. Beyonce on Hinge. Philip
0: is a dear friend, and he did meet Darian, and they're getting married. So yes, thank you. I guess I should be on Hinge now. Well, (laughs) speaking of dating apps with good uh, reputations, I used to work at Grindr, uh, which a lot of people know. And you know, we had our own issues with the dating space. And so I'd love to hear from you what you think the biggest concern for LGBTQ users on these apps are right now. Uh, I mean, I do
4: think that, uh, you know, we're, we're in this world where I think privacy continues to be an issue for people. What do they want to put out there? What do they not want to put out there? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I generally find that we, like, I think on at least Hinge, which is the app that I know intimately, um, I think we've provided a really, really great experience for uh, LGBTQ users. I think especially um, from from gay men that we hear about is that it's just there's not really a singular place that they feel they can go if they're not looking for something that's a little bit more short-term a little yeah. more casual, and it's really nice to have a platform that's very specifically about uh, long-term relationships yeah. and people who really want to connect with long-term. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. and I feel like your platform, because it is so much about long-term relationships potentially, there's a lot of data being mined in there, and people are giving a lot of information. So, you know, data privacy is a huge conversation with tech companies, but especially dating tech companies currently. What are the biggest risks people can expect with their data being in the hands of platforms like yours?
4: So we are, we're really, I mean, we're really thoughtful about this. We um, we make sure that data is only accessed on a need-to-know basis in the company. It's not like anyone can just, like, pop in and okay. look at the data. Uh, all of the security measures and encryption to make sure that people, uh, that the data is totally safe. We've never had an incident. Obviously, we have a zero-tolerance policy. If anyone were to access the data inappropriately, um, mm-hmm. they'd be terminated. So we we just are really, really conscious about that to make sure that the data that we have on our platform is mm-hmm. is totally um, safe. I mean, the way that we use data is to help people get out on more dates mm-hmm. more quickly.
0: Mm, which is, is a good thing to do because people forget that these apps are not supposed to be a place where you live all day. Just yeah. to eventually be with someone. Well, speaking of being with people, there was recently a, a, an article in Forbes about toxic culture at Badoo, uh, which is Bumble's parent company. Uh, did you see the story? And what was your reaction to the reporting around that?
4: Uh, I saw it, it's, it's sad and disappointing. I mean, I I've no, I, I don't have any firsthand knowledge mm-hmm. uh, of that per se, but, um, but I just do think it, it really, it just makes me more confident in the way that we do things at Hinge. Like we're such a values-first company and I just couldn't imagine those types of things even being claimed at Hinge because um, we, we're so explicit about the way we do things. We hold ourselves accountable every single week. We have a town hall where people can ask me about what's going mm-hmm. on. Like, are we living up to our values? Um, and so certainly the types of allegations that are being made there, we would that would have been caught and brought yeah. down so quickly within an organization. Also because it's so cross-functional. Marketing and product and engineering, we all sit together. Yeah. And so everyone knows what's going on around the whole company. We're only 50 people. Oh, wow. And so that is also, I think, very different than when you have a company that has a sort of just like a marketing arm that… Mm-hmm. that that puts a a product out, but isn't really involved in the product development or the engineering.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, makes sense. Well, Justin, thank you so much for spending time with me today, helping me realize that I may need a different app to get married these days. (laughs) Well, stay tuned, everyone, because Alex is talking to activist Rebecca Kling about what's going on at the border.
1: Rebecca Kling tweeted, I was arrested with 17 other Jews and allies in the Cannon Congressional Building in Washington, D.C. as part of a Never Again is Now protest against the U.S. government's detention and abuse of immigrants in American-run concentration camps around the country. Rebecca joins me now.
5: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to be here. Yeah, so glad
1: to talk to you. And um, for those who haven't seen this hashtag, where does the Never Again is Now hashtag come from?
5: In the Jewish community, we talk about never again, really as early as I can remember from from very young in childhood. And we talk about never again as the idea that as Jews, we have a responsibility to not allow the level of genocide and injustice and dehumanization and abuse that happened during the Holocaust to millions and millions of Jews, as well as millions of others. And the never again is now, um, action and movement is taking that language and saying, this isn't an abstract idea for some point in the future. This isn't an abstract idea for somewhere else in the world. Never again is now. This is happening in our country and we need to address it.
1: Yeah, this is not h- an abstract idea. Um, why is this a movement that you want it to be a part of?
5: There are a couple of things there. First, as a Jewish American, I grew up hearing the idea of never again. I was very fortunate in growing up in uh, the suburbs of Chicago in a community where being Jewish didn't feel particularly out of the ordinary, but being part of the Jewish community and uh, later in life coming out as a queer person, as a transgender person, I am intimately familiar both from personal experience and from community conversation of what happens when you start dehumanizing people and of what happens when that dehumanization is built into systems like ICE or like Customs and Border Patrol. And that leads down a really scary road. It leads down a very dangerous road. And it's one that, as an American, as a Jewish woman, as a transgender person, and I would just argue as a human being who has empathy for those around me, I have a responsibility to speak out, as do other people in those communities.
1: Now, I want to talk a little bit more about the particular demonstrations that have been happening. Um, What was the particular protest that got you arrested?
5: The one that we were doing was in the Cannon Office Building, which is one of the congressional office buildings, so where members of Congress have their offices. It's just south of the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., and we were there um, with banners and with song and with prayers and with chants and with reciting the names of the lives that have been lost under ICE custody in the last couple of years and making a visible stand that this is something that can't continue and that this is something that both um, the Jewish community and allies are very concerned about. And myself and 17 other Jews, so 18 people total, which is a a symbolic number in Judaism, 18 people total refused the Capitol police orders to disperse and as a result were arrested.
1: Mm. Now Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez sparked controversy when she compared the detention centers to concentration camps. What's your view of that conversation over semantics?
5: there are a couple of things there first it's really convenient for people in support of these camps to talk about the semantics rather than what's happening there that shifting the conversation about oh are we offended at AOC's language really allows people to sidestep are we keeping children in cages are we providing adequate bedding and sleeping space for the people in us government care are we providing plumbing that actually works and absolutely no one is making the claim that what is happening in these camps is the same as the death camps operated by Nazi Germany in the 1940s. Literally no one is making that claim. However, those death camps didn't just appear magically in 1944. They were built up to. One of the things that I um, I've been thinking a lot about recently is that the first concentration camp in Nazi Germany opened in 1933 to house about 5,000 political prisoners. And if you had asked average Germans in 1933, none of them could have possibly imagined what would happen a decade from now under their government and with at least some amount of passive complicity from the general public. And the point of sounding an alarm is to sound it before it's too late that unfortunately it is now too late for the dozens of people who have died in US government care or as a result of being under ICE custody, but it's not too late to prevent some of the more um, egregious abuses that may be down the road. The whole point of sounding the alarm is again, not to say that what's happening under the US government and ICE is equivalent to what happened in 1943 or 1944. It is to say, that this is a really dangerous and scary road we're going down. And that government dehumanization, which is what happens when you have the president on down talking about them versus us, that goes down a road that can result, not guaranteed, but can result in really unspeakable and inhuman atrocities. Mm. And the goal of sounding the alarm now of, of Jews and allies and others is to say, Not that we're there yet, but that we want to make sure we don't get there. Mm.
1: Well, this past weekend, a video circulated of Vice President Mike Pence visiting a detention center. Um, How does seeing this image make you feel?
5: I think it's incredibly disappointing and sadly not surprising that um, Vice President Pence really seemed uninterested and without a lot of emotional connection to the people that he was looking at. It also seemed convenient that the photos I've seen from those uh, tours of these uh, facilities were primarily showing adult men locked in cages, that it is very convenient that the photos that came out were not of women and children. This really feeds the conservative narrative that the people coming are dangerous and scary, neither of which is particularly true. So I was both disappointed with the way that the vice president presented that trip, as well as um, what he seemed to experience, or I would say, unfortunately, didn't experience in the way of human empathy.
1: I want to go to one of your tweets. You tweeted, I truly do not understand this insistence that we can't talk about the Holocaust until a government is literally rounding up and murdering millions of people. The whole fucking point of learning from history is to avoid making the same mistakes again. You mentioned some of the different media narratives around what's happening. Um, What do you say to people who are turning away from what's happening at the border?
5: I think it's hard that we are in a time of, unfortunately, a lot of... um, Really difficult issues that people are dealing with, ranging from what's happening at the border, and to be clear, elsewhere that not everyone is kept in camps at the border; there are camps around the country, as well as the climate crisis, as well as the latest racist thing that the president of the United States has put on Twitter, as well as the attack on reproductive health care, as well as there's a whole long list of scary things that are happening right now, and it is important for everyone to find the balance of how they can engage without burning themselves out and how they can engage without losing hope. Hope is really important and the ability to go the distance is important. This is unfortunately a long-haul fight that we're in for. It's not going to be over tomorrow. At the same time, while no one can do everything, everyone can do something, whether that's donating a couple bucks to some of the organizations who are working to um, provide support to the migrants and to end the detention, whether it's attending a rally or a protest in your part of the country, whether it's calling or writing to your elected officials. I fully understand people who, um, and I, I can empathize this with my own experience, who have difficulty seeing what's happening and have difficulty following it because it is so heavy. And I have a lot of um, understanding for that attitude. We can't allow that to become complacency and we can't allow needing to catch your breath to turn into forgetting about these issues or ignoring them. And and that's a balance each person has to find individually. But again, no one can do everything. Everyone can do something.
1: Well, I think that's a great note to leave us on, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me.
5: Thank you for the opportunity. I hope that in the future we'll have a chance to talk on on something a little lighter, Uh, but thank you for the opportunity to share this important information.
1: And up next, you'll see my sit down with Ryan Jamal Swain, the star of Post. I am so excited to be sitting down with a star of one of my favorite shows, actor Ryan Jamal Swain, who plays Damon on Pose. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me. Can we talk about this hat first? I know, right? It's so beautiful.
6: <laughs> it's this brand, this new brand, this um, African-American designer, uh, Rodney Patterson with Essential. So, you know, you've probably seen my castmate or, you know, my co-star, Billy Porter, with a lot yeah. of his hats as well. But, you know, it's just like, always love to do this and make a good time and have a fashion moment. I,
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm really here for it. <laughs> well, um, you know, speaking of the show, um, you uh, got this role after graduating from drama school moving to New York Mm -hmm. not so unlike your character (laughs) when you got the script were you just like this is so much like my story
6: you know when I got the script I was just like wow I read it and I've never read anything like it. It was this really, really gritty, beautiful project written by Stephen Canals and they sent the, the pilot draft that he was um, optioning for everyone. And I saw in Damon a space to grow, a space to like find my own voice and very similar to what I was doing. And, I, and when I read it, it was just like a moment where I was like, wow, this is me. I need to do this. I hope I can do it. But, you know, I'm a theater actor. They're not going to hire any theater actors. You know, it's TV. They want a TV actor or a film actor, somebody that has been doing this, right? And having the opportunity first with the casting director um, and then the next session or the next audition being with Ryan and Seema Canals and Brad Falchuk and Nina Jacobson, all of the the producing session, it was just like, wow, this is really happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And Damon is... So close to, as you said, close to my experiences, being like having a big insatiable dream and a hunger for more, but also having to deal with life's woes and life's challenges in regards to how he decides to show up in his in the world. And I find that you know, with so much that is happening now, um, with so much youth that have to, uh, who have chosen their truth over their safety and their mm-hmm. happiness over their safety, um, it was really, really empowering and made me really feel like you know. Um, this is the part that I need. And if it scares me, then I need to do it. And mm. that's what happens. So.
1: Well, Damon has such a sweetness and a vulnerability that comes through mm. on screen. Um, and I understand tomorrow is going to be a big episode. Oh, for him. <laughs>
6: oh, oh, oh. You ca- I'm, I'm telling you. Um, you know, you really get to see, because we go from season one, Damon, who is very much a naive, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young man, um, but is very like green to New York City. And then now in season two, you see him really truly become like a, a, a young adult, right? His 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 lover is on tour. Um, he's had time to like really get in tune. It's 1990. So you get all of this stuff. He's getting really, really, di- he dived into um, just the culture and, and the world of the 1990s and what that pop culture thing and how that influences him. And he has a start making turn. Tomorrow. So.
1: All right. I, I mean, I, I guess we'll all just have to wait and tune <laughs> yes. in. But you mentioned um, the rest of his storyline. Of course, Damon uh, experiences his first heartbreak. Yes. And a lot of people on Twitter were saying that he should take Ricky, oh. the unfaithful Ricky, uh-huh.
6: back. Do you agree with that? Well, I, you know, um, I think I put something on Twitter maybe uh, after the after the um, the episode aired, which was just saying like, you know, heartbreak with your first is never okay it's never um it's never easy but i think that when you with the reason why damon which is why he chose himself to love himself to find himself i believe that every young person should do that um, because quite honestly we are told so much and how men and women non-binaries you know, non-conforming people are conditioned are to believe that we need someone to feel whole mm-hmm. when really and truly i think that what was so beautiful about that exploration was to allow us to find the power within ourselves and the wholeness within ourselves So, um, you know, that's, I, I think that with that and how this is going to propel with tomorrow's episode, you're really going to see how he's deciding to truly start to fight for himself, show up for himself and show up for his life in a way that I think a lot of young people will feel empowered mm-hmm. and feel loved.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so much of the show uh, reflects the experiences that so many people have in real life. And yes. now we're going to get to a little spoiler warning for everyone. Um, in episode four, uh, the show directly addressed the violence against trans women of yeah. color. Um I mean, a devastatingly beautiful episode. Yeah, yeah. What was it like working with Angelica Ross on that one?
6: You know, what's so beautiful about Angelica, um, from a from a standpoint, is just as a as a as an artist, as a craftsman, as a spirit, is that she is all about harboring and harnessing um, her spiritual power to then thus like help her move forward and move past um, all the physical elements and the physical trials and tribulations that she has to deal with. Now, working on that. She kept that under, under wraps from all of us. We didn't know until we read the script. So we were sitting there reading the script and like, Wow. What's going on? What's going on? And you know, it was very, it was a very, it was a very, not, I don't want to say tense, but a very like, there was a lull, a spirit over we're doing something really, really important and really, really um, transformative in, in the world of television. I think is the most, and I can say this, um, I think last week's episode was one of the most important hours of television history to date, and Angelica did such an, a marvelous job and handled like a true pro. And you know, last week we found out that she's going to be joining uh, AHS 1984, which is dope. You know, that, that's what's so beautiful about Ryan Murphy is that he takes care of all of us um, in regards to just making sure that we are set. And, you know, she doesn't go, Candy might die, but her next iteration of Angelica will live on and live on. And I think that it really speaks to just um, how we need to, as a un- united, States of America and a global spectrum to wake up to the things that are happening to our trans sisters and brothers and their beings. You know, I, I you know, I, it's, it's so beautiful to be on this show. I tell everyone all the time that I'm on the best TV show ever because my TV cast is out there doing the work as well. You yeah. know, Angelica on top of being an actress has her creator of trans tech, her own, you know, global trans, um, uh, technician thing that she does with just making sure that the voice is not, she's the voice for the voiceless. And yeah. I'm so proud of her.
1: So. Yeah. Well, I mean, talk about people doing the work on the show and then out there in the world, like yes, yes. Janet Mock yes. and Ryan Murphy. Yes. And um, one of the storylines that has been so moving is about the AIDS epidemic and yeah. your character participating in a dying in um, in a church. Yeah. Do you have generational conversations with them um, as they're kind of creating the content and the storylines about like what that means and the significance
6: yeah, you know, yeah, it's it's one of those things, I think, with we've been afforded a blessing with this writing room, which is that we are so close with them. And we kind of all started out, this is all like our first baby, all of us, Jen and Mock, you know, making history as the first trans woman to direct and produce and write. And then, you know, um, Stephen Canals being Afro-Latinx, um, you know, creator and a showrunner of a show. Like, and, and so it's it's one of those things where we do have these conversations and we know that we are we're being handled with care, and it's being handled with care, which is I think so beautiful about this show and, and this and this work because we get to tap into the hard questions and stop the stigmas. We get to get into the conversation about ending the stigma against these things and really forwarding like, oh, these are people who just so happen to have or just so happen to be. And I think that what we lose sight of, because um, we've been conditioned to believe that from not only the government or this administration, but also just like the history of this universe is everybody harbors on fear, you know, and um, Pose, what it does so beautifully is allows us to uh, have the courage to live and the courage to create without any type of fear construct. Is in the presence of fear, excuse me, not without it, but in the presence mm-hmm. of how do you show up for your life in that way, so.
1: I think one of the the big things that uh, you're getting at with that idea of showing up is also relying on chosen family hey, that show is show up, right? Yes. Um, and, and, and you know, obviously that's a big theme uh, in the show. Yeah. Is there also a sense of chosen family on set and behind yes. the scenes?
6: Yes, You When you see, like, the BTS that we decide to air <laughs> and everything, that is really how we, like, are with each other. We are really, like, a close-knit family because we realized that before we knew that season two or... Or season three was going to happen. We knew that we was doing, we were doing something very, very special and very, very um, uh, uh, singular. And we knew that all of us had to show up in extraordinary ways. And then I think that's just like this fraternal or this sorority kind of like pact, right? Like you just feel like, okay, this might not happen again, but while we're here, we're going to make the most of it and love on each other. And my castmates, we are nothing but a big ball of support.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned
1: season three. The show got renewed for another season right after the first episode Episode of the season. It's really propelled all of you um, into this new level of fame. How has it been adjusting to that?
6: Girl, oh, <laughs> when I tell you, like I live on a very busy street in Manhattan, like upper Manhattan, and I can't even step two feet out of my house before someone is like, they do a double take because usually I'm trying to, you know, Sade, she has she has this uh, disguise called Dorinda where she wears like this wig and these glasses. Well, I haven't gotten there yet. I only got one wig, <laughs> but I, you know, but it's just like one of those things where I have to start thinking about that because it gets a little crazy, yeah, you know? And yeah. you have to realize Like, you know, we had that big, I guess I'm going to call it a second premiere on Netflix. And then so I think that kind of just made it like now it's a global thing. And Ryan warned us. He was just like, it's about to get that much bigger. And you all, I want all of you to be a part of it. So let's figure it out. So it's been crazy. But it's also been on top of just that, that elaborate type of thing. It has also been when people come up to me, they're on the brink of tears, you know, their 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 hearts beating really, really fast, and just like they're saying that, oh my God, your character, your story, really had um, provided vocabulary for my family to understand what I'm going through. Because for me personally, my family didn't have any type of representation. Um, and until uh, Empire with uh, Jesse Smollett's character. And then so now me being the vessel for another mm-hmm. space that is very similar to a bunch of queer youth and a, a bunch of youth in general. And just like having a dream and being met with um, disdain and disgust and wanting to live up your life and show up for your life. I found that, wow, I'm a spokesperson for this new age, a new wave of um, queer youth and youth of color and. People that have been on have been ostracized, and I, and that's a very res, that's a big responsibility. But it's one of those things where. My family prepared me for that, so yeah. I'm good. Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's been so delightful talking to you. I yes. feel like when you're talking about the fame stuff, it just means you have to like pull the brim of your hat. Right, down brim, like, A little bit lower. Like <laughs>
6: you have to do like exactly, that.
1: Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Can't wait for tomorrow's episode. Thank you so much for joining Oh, me. thank you so very much, my dear. Oh Yes, this is lovely. If you are not watching Ryan on Pose, <laughs> fix that immediately. What are you doing? <laughs> New episodes are Tuesday nights on FX. More Amsterdam is coming up next. Welcome back! It is time for At Us. What a show! It was so great. I love your yeah. with Ryan. Ryan was so, so delightful. Cool. And
0: that hat looks fun. Yes. I made a joke that he looks like he's from The Wiz, but it's a very cute Wiz. Like I think that's Issei Miyaki. Issei Miyaki's He's wearing some very. Oh, okay, cute
1: got it. I, I love, cute. I love the hat. I love the look. I love that all of our guests feel like they can bring their best, most creative this, outfits. Yes, it's a safe space for you and your
0: fashions. Yeah. Well, speaking of safe space, we wanted you to send us content that brings you joy this Monday morning. Josh sent us this hippo eating watermelon.
1: Oh! Is so- uh, oh my God! I wow! Was, I was oh my it to God! Get, like, a little piece of watermelon, but uh, no, it's a hippo. Wow! Hungry,
0: hippo. hungry hippo! Yes. All
1: right. Okay, hippo. Okay. Yes. Well, speaking of uh, some more joy, we asked <laughs> what famous treat uh Scarlett Johansson should not play, and Christina says. Tree beard, I which died. is a Lord of the Rings character. Yes, it's like it's like a
0: very big tree, <laughs> yeah. which is incredible. Yeah.
1: So like, no, not a not any tree. Can't oh my tree.
0: gosh, Kirsten Baptiste tweeted, "Saeed said, said Scarlet was going to take Groot's job next, and well, well, oh my well, God, that little tree like Sa- superhero." Saeed, you know it, yes, the tree sa-id from Saeed knew. Um, sa-id knew. What's it? Galaxies. Uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. we go. I Look oh, at man. me. I'm a Marvel person. There we go. <laughs> I have to say,
1: like, I am finding so much joy. Please keep sending us your tweets. Yes, please, please do. Yes, and I love okay. it. I'm
0: getting a lot of tweets about trees, like you know, Mother Willow, um, Japanese pear trees or something. Yeah. I, they're great. So Keep many. them coming. So many.
1: Well, thank you to our guests, for Prakash, Goldie Taylor, Rebecca Kling, Justin McLeod, and Ryan Jamal Swain.
0: We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day, Twitter.